From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. I'm Jen Golbeck from the University of Maryland, sitting in for Kojo. In today's tech-centric world, there's no such thing as anonymous. Every link we click, every passing curiosity we Google... And now that we carry our smartphones everywhere we go, every step we take is quantified, saved, and analyzed. Private companies are using that information to create a digital you, and that digital you is for sale. You're no longer just the consumer, you've become the product. Here to discuss the data we leave behind as we go about our lives and what happens to that data are Alvaro Bedoya, the founding executive director of the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. Alvaro, it's good to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. Also in studio is Jeff Chester, the executive director for the Center for Digital Democracy. Jeff, it's good to have you. Thank you. And joining us by phone is Daniel Castro, the vice president of the... Information Technology and Innovation Foundation and Director of the Center for Data Innovation, and he'll join us shortly. Let's start with you, Alvaro. We all know the adage, you are what you eat. Would a modern update in the eyes of tech companies and advertisers be, you are what you search or you are your data? I think what's really interesting about that digital you and really problematic is that it's a much broader and more encompassing digital you than our digital us, you know, uh, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, our digital lives were what we searched online, what we bought online maybe. Now, this latest wave of technology digitizes our previously offline life. And so it creates extremely sensitive data that before just didn't exist. And and the problem is that we aren't protecting it. And so just to give a couple examples, um, used to take a walk. Unless you bumped into someone you knew, no one would know where you went. Now, your smartphone tracks that automatically. Retailers are tracking that automatically. And increasingly, they're using facial recognition technology to see you the moment and identify you the moment you walk into a store. Our health information used to be something that only, you know, uh, uh, you knew and your doctor knew, maybe your spouse knew. Now, there are earbuds that track your heart rate. There are wristbands that track uh, uh, the glucose level in your blood. There are pregnancy tracking apps. There are even wearable fertility monitors for women. And uh, the fact is they generate all this data and our law isn't ready for it. And so all this stuff is unregulated and all this stuff is being shared uh, and it isn't being protected the way it should be. And that's a big problem. Jeff, did you want to follow up on that? Well, the... Globally, we have created a commercial surveillance infrastructure. This system is constantly gathering, analyzing, and using all this information about us every day. Companies like Google and Facebook and thousands of others expand their data collection apparatus, offline and online information. As Alvaro was saying, when we're in the store, what we shop, what we buy, they infer and know what our race is, what our income is. And all this is used to target us for for products, for political campaigns, for many other kinds of things that are important in our life. This this is a non-transparent surveillance apparatus that has far-reaching consequences for our democracy and individuals, and very little is being done to address it. And Alvaro, one thing we were talking about before we actually came Mm -hmm. on the air is that it's not just the things that we do and the things that maybe we tried to keep private, but Mm -hmm. now people can follow. The traces that we leave behind can tell these companies things about us that we don't even know they're finding out. And the example we talked about that maybe you can elaborate on um, is this example of Target being able to find out if women are pregnant and pinpoint their due date very early on in their pregnancy by looking at their purchase history. That's right. Uh, There's a series of of pretty powerful studies on this. You know, you can determine whether someone with a high likelihood of certainty whether someone is LGBT uh, by their Facebook likes. You know, um, Target was able to figure out whether uh, women were pregnant based on whether they bought, you know, certain kinds of lotions or a purse that would accommodate diapers. And and, um, why do they do this? They do this because... 
people switch brands, the one moment in their lives in which people are likely to switch brands, which is a big financial moment for retailers, is that period uh, uh, right after pregnancy when you don't have time, you got to cut down on what you're doing. But here's the thing. Um, it may be one thing for Target to uh, learn that information, serve you targeted ads, and a lot of people might think that's that's going too far. Other people might think that's just fine. A lot of that information is being shared with companies you've never heard of. So about a year and a half ago, a company called Evadon, um, now called Ghostery, looked at the top 20 health and fitness apps. And they found that those apps shared, those 20 apps shared their information with 70 different companies. And what's more, about three of those apps were actually fertility tracking apps and pregnancy tracking apps. And those three apps, each of them shared their data somewhere uh, with somewhere between seven and 12 different companies. And um, I think this is just unacceptable, and I think we need to fix that. But it's not just the companies you don't know. Sure. Every business really in this country, mostly the largest companies, have invested significantly in far-reaching technologies, data management platforms that capture all your information and analyze it and use it. Advertisers and marketers realize, and this is true, this is the world that's been created, that they have to influence us at every point. And today we live in what people call a multi-device world. You know, we're watching television, which is soon going to go all digital and collect lots more information about us if we want to talk about it. We're using our smartphone. We may be on gaming platforms. They are collecting all this information, analyzing it so they can reach us and influence it, including, once again, political campaigns. This is how we're conducting elections today. Mm -hmm. And there's really no privacy to protect these political groups and special interest groups from using all these powerful profiles that shows them our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses and interests, and to create very sophisticated and, frankly, non-transparent uh, pitches to get us to do one thing or another. Uh, with And there's absolutely no way we can stop it or really challenge it at the moment. And we'll come back to that because I think the issue of how political campaigns use this is especially exciting. In the meantime, you can also join the conversation. Are you surprised that tech companies save so much information about you? Do you think your internet history accurately describes you? You can give us a call at 1-800-433-8850 or send us an email to kojo at wamu.org. I think now on the phone we do have Daniel Castro. Daniel, are you with us? I'm here. Hi, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Daniel, a few weeks ago, Google announced users can download their entire search histories. I think some people were probably curious. Some may have been scared. But without a doubt, many were surprised that all that information was being stored. What else, in addition to our search histories, is being saved? Well, there's a lot of information that companies collect, uh, routine transactional information, the search information, um, even, you know, information about how users are interacting with products, um, when they go shopping, you know, when you're actually in physical retail stores, where you go, how much time you spend in certain areas, um, you know, how much time it takes you to find the product. And, you know, generally companies are using this information to improve the services they're offering for, to consumers. I think there's a little bit of a misperception that, you know, we, you, when we hear about data collection, it's become kind of this, this boogeyman, this bad thing. But, you know, most companies are, are collecting this data so that they can, you know, provide to their customers a better experience. You know, they're really about how can we save time? How can we get rid of products that consumers don't want and bring products that they do want? How can we identify where there are customer complaints about our products so we can go out and fix that? Um, you know, there's a lot of really good things that are happening with this data and the companies couldn't do before when they didn't have access to the information. So I will say, I uh, am a woman in my 30s and up until last year was single, and I got an awful lot of uh, advertisements for fertility treatments on my Facebook page, which I was not mm. interested in. Uh, so if they could target me with ads for shoes, that would be better. But Jeff, <laughs> I see you shaking your head at what Daniel is saying. Do you want to follow up on his answer? Well, of course, there's a lots of good things that happen. Uh, online from the collection of data, though individuals need to know and be able to control it. But a lot of bad things happen as well. So for the listeners, just go and do a search. Think with Google. Look at the site. See, Google tells the public one thing, but tells its clients, which are the most powerful advertisers and corporations in the world, another. So take a look at Think with Google and see how Google helps companies 
collect your information and sell high-priced car loans. See how they help hospitals and other kinds of medical facilities target you when you have a health condition. And there are many other product categories. Look at DoubleClick, which is the tech arm of Google. Just go on DoubleClick.com and see the massive amounts of information being collected about you when you're online, the mobile phone, your location, etc. And see Google's whole approach to tracking you wherever you are and getting you into the store and following you right afterwards. It's called, they call it path to purchase. So as I said before, there's another side of this story. Yes, it it can empower us, but it has to be held accountable to individuals, to citizens. Alvaro, uh, Daniel, you next, but Alvaro first. Hey, yeah, so I wanted to, to add, you know, I, I agree with Daniel. There's there's a ton of good that comes from this data, and, and as a result of it, the apps on my phone run more easily. Uh, um, I get to a lot of places I'm going faster. Um, there's infinite ways. But the, the challenge before us right now is to lay down some baseline regulations so that we keep all that good stuff and we eliminate the boogeyman. And right now, um, Daniel's right, it's, it's unfair to call it uh, uh, all of it a boogeyman, but there is very much a boogeyman there. Uh, uh, and for me and for a lot of other folks who care about privacy, uh, uh, those boogeymen are data brokers. So data brokers are companies that collect billions of data points on consumers. And um, they create lists of people that categorize them by their weaknesses, by the traumas they've suffered, by the illnesses they suffer from, by their vulnerabilities. So they create lists of elderly people who um, uh, are down on their luck. They create lists of Hispanics uh, to target for payday loans. They create lists of uh, people who are HIV positive or who have suffered uh, sexual assault. And um, there's a lot of research showing that those lists are used by um, fraudsters to defraud, particularly elderly people, of millions upon millions of dollars. The really scary thing, though, is what's coming down the line. Uh, Facial recognition technology, and you know this, you're a computer scientist, it's not quite yet at the level where a stranger can point a camera at someone and figure out who they are, but it's going to get there pretty soon. And so, you know, in a couple of years, we're going to be in a world where you walk into a car dealership and the car salesman knows your name, your job, how much money you make. Uh, We're going to be in a world uh, in a few years after that where someone on the street can point a camera at you or your son or daughter and figure out their name and where they live. And I think that's an unacceptable future. But right now, there's really nothing in federal law that prevents that future. So um, I'm all about saving the upside. That's not the challenge right now. We're going to see that automatically. Unless we act to, to some, do some light, some nicely tailored regulations, we're going to see those boogeymen too. Daniel Castro, you were trying to jump in there. Yeah, I just want to respond because, you know, there's, uh, I think what Jeff is doing is he's conflating, you know, different things. I mean, everyone agrees that we don't want false and deceptive ads. You know, we don't want ads that are, um, you know, intentionally selling bad products to people. We don't want ads that are taking advantage of people. We don't want those products to even exist, much less the ads that are associated with them. And we have to separate that from just the use of data um, and the collection of data because those two things aren't actually the same thing, and they're not, re- they're not related. Um, certainly you have, you know, bad companies that are going to be using the same advertising practices as good companies. Um, but the issue there isn't advertising. It's how it's being used. And, I mean, we can look at, you know, some of these really – even when you look at vulnerable populations, you can look at something like – uh, depression and suicide. You know, certainly um, we can agree that's a you know that's a vulnerable population. We have really great research about how you can identify uh, potentially at-risk soldiers, for example, or veterans. And there's projects that are trying to use big data and use analytics to figure out um, you know who these individuals are, so that the VA can go out and help them and provide services to them. So you know, there's also a flip side to all of this. We can't just say that identifying these groups is a bad thing. It's often really the actual use that we care about. You know, we can even go to some of the, you know, the other things about, you know, that's just kind of the, the uh, you know, icky factor some people have with how data is used. I mean, you don't want, uh, for example, you don't want the fertility ads, but you want the shoe ads. I mean, that's the kind of information that actually companies would pay for. You know, companies want to know, you know, I don't want to spend my money advertising this to a customer that's not interested or a potential customer that's not interested. So we really need to be thinking about how we use all this data to create the right kind of outcomes that we want. Even on things like, you know, car sales, it used to be that, um, you know, you, you thought about the state and you thought about the uh, car dealers knowing so much information, but really it's the consumers that have been empowered lately with how much more information we have now when we go into a car dealer. We can go in and we can know how much our peers are paying for a vehicle and we can negotiate much better than we could in the past. So, you know, there's this uh, 
idea of technological determinism that I think some people who are afraid of data like to put out there, and they say that, you know, because of this technology, we're going to end up in a worse place. That's not the right perspective. We should be saying, you know, where do we want to go with this technology, and how can we get there, and have policymakers, some of it through regulation, but I think that can be, you know, a light touch, but also through just talking about what's the future that we want and bringing companies together, bringing stakeholders together, and really working towards that positive vision. And we're going to have to take a quick break, so I'm going to stop you there, Daniel. If you'd like to join us, you can give us a call at 1-800-433-8850. We'll be back in just a minute. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the Kojo Nambi Show. It returns in just a moment. It's 1222 Cloudy Skies. 82 degrees in northwest Washington. Thanks to everyone who contributed to our spring membership campaign. Member support is our most important source of funding, so thank you for doing much more than just listening. With so many things competing for your attention, it's easy to forget about the world around us. This is the time of the year when many people don't get a chance to travel or go on vacation. Let Morning Edition take you on a trip around the country and the world for the latest news and analysis. Let's go next to Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is getting close to calling early elections. If you want to experience where voting really counts these midterm elections, go to Colorado. Don't forget to remember, Morning Edition, weekday mornings starting at 5. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Comcast Business. With Internet that's built from the ground up to be reliable, Comcast Business is built for business. More information about business-grade Internet, voice, and TV is at ComcastBusiness.com. And from General Dynamics IT Cloud Solutions, providing your enterprise with secure federal cloud solutions. General Dynamics Cloud Solutions, GDIT.com slash cloud. And from the historic Chamberlain Waterfront Retirement Community on Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia, offering a stay on the bay two-night visit for people 65 or wiser. More at 757-772-0141. Welcome back. I'm Jen Golbeck from the University of Maryland, sitting in for Kojo. We're talking with Alvaro Bedoya, Daniel Castro, and Jeff Chester about our personal data and how it's used online. Now, Jeff, you wanted to jump in. Before the break, we were talking about the good things and the scary things that happen with all this data about us and how it's being used commercially. So I wanted to let you pick up on that point. Well, first place, everyone today is a data broker. I think that's very important that Americans uh, understand. Uh, Kellogg's is a data broker. What's happened is, as a result of our use of all these digital devices and the need to collect this information and their ability, because there are no legal constraints, to collect it and use it to target us, all the major companies... Are, are, are using the data that they collect and are buying outside data, which they're using to target us often in real time. We are sold now in what's called ad exchanges in the online marketing industry. We're sold in seven milliseconds. We may be using our mobile device. We may be w watching our PC. And they have taken our profile and they said, this person can spend X. This person has a medical concern. This person is an Hispanic. This is a person we can sell junk food to. And we're sold in real time. And Daniel also tried to say that there's a separation between the information they collect and the marketing. No. Data is, is the foundation of the marketing. And what Google and Facebook and all the others have done is has used that data in very innovative ways to target us on social, social media, to target us using geolocation. They're even testing the ads using the latest advances in neuroscience. Neuromarketing is a common practice today. As I said, this is a very powerful and invisible system that's operating here without the consent of the individual. And there, there's a couple interesting points that I want to throw back at all of you in response to that. One is that we see some of this. I mean, I would agree, certainly, that I would like better targeted ads. And there are lots of nice ways that this technology is used. Amazon recommendations, Netflix recommendations. They make it easier to use those technologies. But at the same time, we also see, like, travel sites. If I go search for a flight and then I come back later, I'll see that same flight at a higher price because they know I want it, hmm. uh, which is kind of the flip side of this positive marketing. And on a point that you just brought up, Jeff, uh, on this neuro-targeting, there's new software out there now, and I don't know if any of you have seen this, that will help you craft personalized email messages to people. It builds a profile of people by grabbing all of this public data that we're talking about. 
Uh, and it says, you know, do they like long subject lines or short subject lines? Should you start this email message uh, by crafting something that has some kind of personal things at the beginning, or should you just jump right in? And the idea is helping individuals leverage all that big data to target their messages. I see you nodding, Well, this, look, this is a system of influence. This is a system of behavioral change. And once again, there are tremendous positive advantages here with this system. But if you look at what's really driving the collection of data by the commercial side today, and even the political side, it's to use these very powerful technologies, including neuromarketing. Just search Facebook and neuromarketing. You'll see Facebook worked with Nielsen to do a neuromarketing study not too long ago to make sure that they could do it well. It's about getting us to buy, getting us to like certain things, all without our conscious awareness or consent. Alvaro. The main thing I'd add to this, Jen, is that a couple of years ago, that profile would consist of would consist of your online life, what you surf, what you buy, you know, um, maybe the number of friends you have on Facebook or whatever social media site you're on. Increasingly, those profiles are going to include information about our bodies, about our health, uh, and they're going to include things that we used to consider totally offline. And uh, what that means is that the stakes are much, much higher for not only not sharing that information, but also securing it. And I think one of the big risks that we have today is that data is always breached. You know, one of the, you know, it's like death taxes and now data breaches, right? <laughs> and, um, and so the data breaches of today are your passwords, um, your credit card information, maybe your social security number. The data breaches of tomorrow are going to involve your fingerprints, your health information, your fertility information. And unless we move aggressively to lay down better rules of the road at the federal and state levels for consumer privacy, this is the way we're headed. Daniel Castro, did you want to chime in on this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think we should, you know, we throw around terms like neuromarketing, and it sounds kind of, you know, this scary thing. And we, we're kind of trying to divorce agency from, you know, human action. I mean, lots of companies want to sell us stuff. Um, you know, they're not able to because people still are making choices. I mean, they're, what they're doing, you know, they're using behavioral science. They're using uh, what's called A-B testing, where they try out lots of different combinations of marketing slogans, and they find out which one works better. Um, you know, these are scientific approaches uh, in the sense of, you know, kind of a, a testing a methodological approach to advertising, they're not necessarily, you know, inherently bad. I mean, they're just more efficient. Um, you know, we even see, you know, government agencies doing this, and I think this is a good thing because we're seeing government agencies able to be more productive. So you have, for example, uh, you know, the IRS, if they identify, you know, potentially fraudulent uh, tax returns, they know they can send different types of letters. They can send a letter that is threatening the individual. They can send a letter that is saying, you know, something a little more passive, and they can look at the different response rates to that and figure out what's the most effective way uh, to get people who cheated on their taxes to, you know, pay the right amount. And that's saving taxpayers money. This is kind of a good thing. And, and we see this in the private sector as well. Companies figuring out how to do things at a more efficient rate. And that's a win for consumers, and of course, it's a win for businesses as well. And you know, you have these kind of ideas that it's it's maybe bad to be efficient, but it can be very helpful to people. I mean, you can look at um, other types of email uh, type analytics. So you can do these uh, analytics on email, so you can see if you're being, for example, too uh, aggressive or passive aggressive or mean spirited in your email, which often happens in, in workplace conversations. And so you can add these plugins. To Outlook and actually, you know, see a warning come up and say, "Hey, maybe you should tone down this email or, or or rethink it." And you know, these are actually helpful feedback mechanisms for individuals. Again, the whole point is it gets to how you use it. You Jeff Chester, it. I, I see you wanting to well, chime look, in on this. Daniel, look, there. You know, I said one of America's few successful industries is stealing other people's data. They're collecting all this information without our consent, by and large. They've not asked us if they can collect all this information when we're on a search engine or on a, using our mobile phone. They haven't asked us whether or not they can bring outside data brokers in to bring additional records. They haven't asked us about the scores, the invisible scores they've created about many of us that tell them whether we're a good risk or we should be sold a, a, a payday loan or an Hispanic and be targeted with junk food. They, they've assigned us these invisible digital scarlet letters. So there's this, the system is put in 
place without the consent of the public. And it's fundamentally wrong, and I hope soon we'll talk about why we have failed so far to regulate and legislate here. We will get to that. Uh, before we do, I want to take some calls and also start with this tweet because it's right on topic with what we were discussing. K. Publik says, background checks are being mass marketed online. My report contains an obvious error. How can I fix it? Now, I'll let you guys chime in potentially on how to fix it. But, Daniel, I wanted to pose that to you because this is an issue with all of this data, right? The data that's collected, the data that's computed and inferred. I mean, when I check these profiles on myself, they invariably say that I'm a 45-year-old man, which I <laughs> promise you I'm not. Uh, I'm, I may search the web like a 45-year-old man, but it's wrong on a lot of things, which we expect. You know, I'm a computer scientist. We expect our algorithms are going to have those errors. But when this is being used to make critical decisions about people, right, not just what kind of ads do they see, what kind of movies do we recommend, but what should what loans should they qualify for? Should we hire them for a job, which is a way this technology is being used? How do you factor in the fact that this kind of data and these kind of inferences can be wrong? Yeah, so, you know, that's something that we have to, I think, take into consideration based on how the data is actually being used. You know, if it's being used for marketing purposes, I mean, you know, companies are, in, in actually almost all these cases, companies are trying to get to a better state. So, you know, the question was, well, how right were they when they were making these guesses, you know, 20 years ago versus 10 years ago versus today, and how right will they be in the future? Are we continuing to move towards better and more correct answers? And, you know, the the consensus is yes. I mean, that's why, you know, you have so many companies collecting this data. They're figuring out better formulas to triangulate on the right answer. Different data sources might predict different things, but you're able to bring all this information together and really hone in on the right answer. The difference between kind of data in the past and data where we are today is in the past, you know, there was maybe one element associated with your name. And if that element was wrong, you know, the, the entire record was wrong. Now, because we're pulling data from so many different places, you can have data that's messy. You can have data that's wrong in one place, but right in another. And when you look at it uh, in a combined uh, way, you can actually get to the right answer. So, but, but Daniel, know. I want to push back on this because what about these cases, for example, where this is being used by insurance companies, creditors, and the part that's wrong is the part that's relevant to my financial responsibility? You know, say it says that uh, I'm at high risk for defaulting on a loan. And that's the wrong part, and it's a creditor that's considering it. Or it's a health insurance company, and it says I'm at high risk for developing obesity and diabetes, and that's the part that's wrong. What do we do when the data point that's critical for the decision is incorrect? How do we handle that? Again, I mean, in, in cases like that, and, and usually if you look at, you know, things where, like, credit reporting, we have laws there, and, and individuals can go and correct the record. Um, in other areas, like health insurance, I mean, we're getting to, um, you know, better information. So, for example, there's health insurers that are now providing discounts if you – uh, use your mobile phone to check in at the gym, or if you use a, a Fitbit or other kind of wearable health device. And, and the reason they're doing that is because as the individual, you can now control the information that they're getting, and it's verifiable. It's data that they trust. It's not just you telling them you went to the gym, but actually proving it to them. So we're kind of moving to a state where data is more accurate, and that's better for consumers, and that's better for businesses. So Alvaro and Jeff, I'm going to ask you to both check in on this, because that, that last part of Daniel's answer, like, sure, I can give more data to my health insurance company, right? Right. link them to my Fitbit and give them my Foursquare check-ins and right. give them access to my location tracking. Is that the solution? So, uh, yeah, more data is good. but but um, And I think, you know, Daniel, you alluded to this. There is a federal law that speaks in part to this, which is the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And we do have um, an access, an accuracy right. And so uh, my my response to the, to the, um, to the caller, the tweeter, is that um, – uh, you know, he or she should call the the entity who produced this report, and he or she should know if he or she meets resistance. Speaking like a lawyer here, uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, that they have a right to access the data and they have a right for it to be accurate. But um, these rights aren't total, so um, the regulations under FICRA are old, and so right now, um, if information like how many friends you have on Facebook or, you know, did you fill out your loan application in all caps or do you buy birdseed? If that kind of crazy, detailed, unexpected information is used to, to make inferences about your credit score, you're never going to learn 
about that when you get your credit report. So one thing we need to do is update those rules and regulations around credit. Jeff. And I think we actually should have a debate, and this show is maybe a part of it. We, we haven't had a debate in this country. Do we really want to have a system, which is what we have and what we're going to increasingly have as everything collects information about us and these super fast computers make these instant decisions about us? Do we really want to have this kind of surveillance? Do we want all our financial information, all our health information, information about our kids constantly collected and used? I say no. We need to put a stop to the collection and use of certain types of data in a democracy that should be under the control of the individual. And so that's what we're going to get to with the questions about legislation. But first, I'd like to take some callers because we've had a bunch of people patiently waiting. If you'd like to join us, you can also give us a call at 1-800-433-8850 or send us an email to kojo at wamu.org. Let's start with Alan on the eastern shore of Maryland. Alan, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I hope you're going to be able to understand me. You sound good. Uh, uh, I have four questions. Uh, first one is, um, if I go into my settings and I turn off my privacy information, uh, is it really off? That's a great question. Let's start with that one, guys. So if he turns on turns off his location stuff on his phone... Does his phone actually stop collecting his data? So so there's unfortunately some precedent on both sides. In general, it should happen. And But there are some very famous unfortunate instances where that's exactly not what's happened. And let me give you two of them. So uh, for a couple of years, Apple um, would continue to track you and record your location and send that information back to Apple, even if you turn location services off. And then in another instance, um, Google would circumvent Apple Safari browser privacy settings when you activated those settings. Google actually would affirmatively circumvent those settings, and they've gotten a lot of heat for that. Um, but generally speaking, Alan, uh, if you turn, if, if you set your privacy settings that way, you should be protected from a certain amount uh, of tracking. Now, also keep in mind that sometimes these companies interpret those toggle switches very narrowly. So, you know, unless your phone is off and it's sleeping and your location is off, then they won't do that thing you don't want them to do. And, you know, it's not going to be economically practical for the majority of Americans actually to turn off geolocation because increasingly your ability to get discounts and offers in those mobile coupons, those e-coupons, which are replacing the print coupons, will all depend and, and force you to give up your geolocation. That's the price of entry. So it's true that, you know, and I think it's a myth that, look, only a very few people can really have the technological ability to fight this thing. The, the, the way they have created the online data collection system is they've embedded data collection at its core, and they're going to make it inescapable for us to provide them information unless we have some legislation. Let's take a call from George in Berlin, Maryland. George, you're on the air. Go ahead. Thank you. I'm so impressed with your uh, panel's knowledge, I'm fearful of speaking. But having read <laughs> Mark Goodman's book, Future Crimes, I'm of the impression that while the collection of data for business purposes may be an illogical extension of Calvin Coolidge's statement that the business of America is business, that's the criminal and governmental oversight of our personal lives, where our children are uh, perverts using the Internet to disguise themselves as children, to lure our children into places they shouldn't go, is what should be investigated and regulated. And I thank you very much for taking my call. I was fortunate enough to be sitting in for Kojo when we interviewed and talked about future crimes on the air. Uh, it was a great book and a really interesting look at how criminal enterprises are using exactly the kinds of technologies that we've been talking about. So a question for all of you, and maybe, Daniel, I'll, I'll start with you since you're not sitting in front of me. Uh, what do you think about where this line is drawn between the legitimate ways that you're talking about how businesses use this data to improve the way we interact and the fact that the same data is accessible in much of the same way to criminal enterprises that might be using it for not such uh, nice purposes. Yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely a problem. Uh, you know, criminals are going to use the same tools that are available to businesses. They always, they always have and, and they'll continue to do it. I don't think data is going to be something that is uh, substantially different. The main difference that we see here is that um, legitimate businesses have, have real customers who are coming to their sites, they're coming to their stores, they're providing them data, they're interacting with their services. Um, most criminal enterprises 
don't have that on the same scale, at least in the kind of uh, public way. So, you know, they may be able to use, you know, buy some information, and, and we've certainly used, seen this when we've seen some type of uh, cyber attacks and identity theft. Um, but by and large, you know, it, it's just another part of, um, you know, as we get new technology, criminals will always use it. Jeff, you wanted to chime in? I mean, look, criminal activity is important, but I think we have to keep the focus on what industry is doing, the well-known companies. They're not engaged in responsible practices. I'll give you an example, and your listeners can go to a website we edit called digitalads.org, which has tracked the way that marketers and advertisers target kids, you know, Hispanic kids, African-American kids, kids with, with diabetes for junk food. Here are the most, some of the most powerful companies in America. And how do they act in terms of all this data? They are promoting the worst foods, even though we have an obesity epidemic. So the, the conversation needs to be focused on the ethics and values of mainstream corporate America and, frankly, the failure of the government, including the Obama administration, to address this. With that, we're going to take a quick break. George, thanks very much for your call. If you'd like to join us, you can give us a call at 1-800-433-8850. I'm Jen Golbeck, sitting in for Kojo. We'll be back in a minute. Coming up at one, the Supreme Court declares a Maryland income tax law unconstitutional. Plus, punching the clock a new political focus on the unpredictable and inflexible schedules of low-wage workers. Today at 1 on the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. 12.42 now, mostly cloudy skies, 83 degrees. I'm Pat Brogan. Kojo returns. Kojo Show returns in just a moment. Thursday night at 9 on WAMU 88.5. It's revealed from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX in D.C. being charged with assaulting a police officer can mean something else entirely. A joint investigation with WAMU and American University examined three years of court cases to find out what happens in D.C. when someone is charged with assaulting a police officer. That story on Reveal Thursday night at 9. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from General Dynamics IT Health Solutions, dedicated to providing IT solutions that meet the challenges of a new era in healthcare. General Dynamics Health, gdit.com slash health. And from University of Maryland University College, offering bachelor's and master's degrees for today's in-demand careers. Learn more about how they can help advance your career at umuc.edu. And from Brilliant Earth, committed to environmental and social responsibility when designing diamond engagement and wedding rings and other fine jewelry. More information online at brilliantearth.com. Welcome back. I'm Jen Golbeck from the University of Maryland, sitting in for Kojo. We're talking with Alvaro Bedoya, Daniel Castro, and Jeff Chester about personal data and our privacy. So we've been alluding over and over to the legislative questions, so I'd like to get to that. Uh, Jeff, let's start with you. You've said this in a lot of your answers on the show today, that we need some kind of legislation to deal with this data privacy. Give me your general thoughts on that, where we need to go, what we have now, uh, what's really missing. Well, this is a very difficult question in, in one way, because we're asking the country and indeed the world economy to, to turn back. I think it's important to have a debate about it in, in, a, in a democracy. Um, there hasn't really been any online privacy legislation since uh, a law that I helped get through back in 1998, 1998 passed Congress, which protects children's privacy. Ironically, children are the only class of Americans that actually have some control over their uh, data collection online. The online lobby, the Googles and the Facebooks, and now you know every other company in the data business are opposed to legislation. They have a lock on Congress. There's a tremendous conflict of interest as well, as we all know, because today it's not television that helps you win campaigns. It's, it's online. It's Facebook. It's search. It's mobile and geo-targeting. So Will the, will the politicians actually regulate something that will not be in, in their best interest? And unfortunately, uh, the White House has really failed to propose legislation that would actually stop uh, this uh, bleeding of data and place controls uh, back into the hands of individuals. Uh, Alvaro, go ahead. Since 2009, Jen, Congress hasn't passed a single new consumer privacy law. In fact, the one law that they did pass um, actually narrowed the video privacy law. 
And if you stop and think about that, that's just bananas. You know, uh, think about everything that's happened since 2009, the Target breach, the Home Depot breach, the Anthem breach, uh, the Uber scandal, Heartbleed, zero new privacy laws. And I come at it a little differently, perhaps, in one way than you, Jeff, in that Democrats and Republicans individually are working really hard to pass those laws. Uh, uh, But when you look at – actually, we're on the same page maybe on this. The lobbying reports, they're outnumbered 20 to 1, 20 lobbying dollars to 1. And so uh, um, there is a happy story here, though, and it's this. You know, since 2009, uh, Congress has passed zero new privacy laws. But in that same period, the state of California alone has passed 29. And so if, you know, your listeners are are at home and listening and, and are caring about their privacy and thinking that not enough is being done, my recommendation to them is to call their state legislator because increasingly privacy protection and innovation in privacy law is occurring at the state level. Daniel, do you think the current regulations that we have in place are sufficient? And do you think there's some that we need to adopt? There's definitely more we can do. Um, you know, the system that we have now is, you know, commonly referred to as notice and choice. So companies um, create privacy policies, and if they violate those terms, um, they're held accountable um, by the FTC, by state attorney generals, I think we there's much more we can do. Certainly, data breach notification is, is high up there. It's something that um, hopefully will pass this Congress, and that will be a, a useful step forward. I think we, you know, one reason we don't have the United States passing more legislation is because we've understood, you know, the U.S. policymakers have understood that having a robust data economy is good for us. I mean, you look, you compare the United States to Europe, which, you know, Europe has this much stricter privacy laws, they've been much more active in the space. You know, name some top European uh, internet companies and, you know, compare that to the list of Europeans or U.S. companies. Besides Spotify, you don't really see much up there. Um, And if we want to continue to be leaders in the space, we need to continue to make it easy for companies to innovate around the use of data. I have two anxious in-studio guests that want to respond to that. Alvaro, you first. Look, let me first say I agree. You know, we we do have a spectacularly robust data economy, and I want that data economy to thrive. But here's the way I look at it. Privacy laws foster innovation. Well-written privacy laws foster innovation, and weak privacy laws hinder innovation. Think about it this way. You know, would you go to a doctor... If you thought the doctor would turn around and tell everyone why you visited her and, you know, the health conditions you have, no. Uh, but thanks to federal privacy law, uh, these doctors, you know, not only have the financial incentive but also the legal requirement not to disclose that information to other people. And right now, it's those laws that are missing. Uh, I, I heard a report recently, I think it was Nielsen, um, Three-quarters of Americans are familiar with wearables, and, you know, they know where they would go if they wanted to get one, but only a sixth of people use them. And I think right now there's a lot of people who would gladly buy a wearable, who would gladly take an Uber, but don't right now because there are not clear guarantees about how their data will be used. And so I think all those numbers would go up if we had a stronger system of privacy laws in place. Privacy laws foster innovation. I think we need to engage in soul-searching here. Do we really want to live in a democracy with this kind of constant monitoring and analysis and the ability to influence us at any and our families at, at any point? Since the mid-'90s, since the Internet economy grew, companies have been collecting much more information every day they expand their data collection apparatus without any check. Yes, you know, it's, it's created a robust uh, economy in part, but there are consequences to uh, the way uh, our civil liberties and the way of life that have to be put fir- first. And as far as Europe is concerned, A, U.S. companies, yes, we're out of the box early, you know, stealing other people's data. So, so companies like Google and Facebook <laughs> dominate the EU. But in the EU, they have something important that we must remember in the United States. In the e- in the EU, you because of Nazism and because of communism, and they understood what happens when there is just a, a, a continual collection and use of data without accountability. They say that privacy is a human right, and we need a human right here in the United States as well for privacy. And Daniel, this is, I want to turn this back around to you, because I think that that's actually a critical part of this. You know, you're talking about 
very good, useful, valuable applications of this data. And I think everyone can agree that we want that, that the web would be a hard place to interact without it. But what happens if I don't want my data used in a particular way? What happens if I don't want a company to know that I'm pregnant? Uh, we were talking at the break that uh, there was a great story that came out a couple weeks ago about a woman who tried to hide digital traces of her pregnancy and ended up looking like a terrorist because it's so unusual to hide those digital traces. But those are simple examples in the U.S., right? When we saw the uh, the uprisings in the Ukraine, the government was tracking people's location and using it to send them messages, text messages that threatened to arrest them for participating in protests, right? This data can be used by authoritarian regimes in really scary ways, and we don't think about that in the U.S. So where does this line between privacy, how I want my data used, come in. Uh, it's not just that companies are giving us valuable things, right? There's areas where we should, you know, really draw the line. And, you know, <clears throat> a great example of this actually stays on the pregnancy topic. You know, employers, um, you know, we've had for a long time, you know, this, this employment law that says you can't discriminate on the basis of uh, pregnancy. So if someone comes in to interview and they're pregnant, you can't, well, one, you can't ask them if they're pregnant, but two, even if you find out about it, you can't use that as a reason to not give them a job. And that's, you know, the same whether you, you infer that from, you know, the way they look or you get that from their medical records or from the sites they've been visiting. But so I, that's what me... we need, those targeted privacy laws. And there's examples of that out there. So the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, that's basically privacy protections for the LGBT community. We need to have privacy advocates spend more time advocating for those types of laws. So Jeff and Albert, I'm going to turn this over to you and throw in that um, I wrote a book that came out about a month ago about investigating people on social media. And I talked to a lot of employers who say they look up every single, every employer I talk talked to said they look up people on social media. And I heard stories of people, even for very high-powered executive jobs, who were not offered the position, not because of things like pregnancy or these protected classes, but say because they posted a picture of themselves on the beach and the company just didn't want someone who would be that public about their private activities getting hired, right? It's, it's a much more subtle, unprotected issue where I may not want that data shared. I may not want it public, but it gets out there, right? Uh, Jeff, it, it, get, it gets out there. You're posting it. You know, people are being encouraged to, to post and, and comment and communicate with their friends. Also, we don't know what all these companies are collecting about us and how we and how it's being used. It's, it's what, you know, it's, uh, Professor Frank Pasquale in a new book calls The Black Box. We don't have access to that decision-making apparatus that tells companies uh, to hire us or not hire us, to charge us more or, ch or charge us uh, less. And we need to have access to it. And I also want to add that the Federal Trade Commission and now the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau are trying to address some of this, but they are hampered in part uh, by the very powerful and vast system that they have to confront. Alvaro, is there a way that people can maintain some level of privacy, or is that not even possible anymore? I, I think so, but if, if, if I can, I'd love Please. to speak to the powerful point that I think Daniel raised, and I am all for uh, stronger civil rights laws, and uh, I think uh, that more privacy advocates should be working in civil rights and vice versa, but here's the thing. Civil rights laws are about protecting you about facts that you can't hide. I can't hide that I'm Latino. You know, uh, uh, my friend can't hide that he's black. You know, someone that's living openly as an LGBT per person shouldn't have to hide that they're LGBT. And so those, those laws are about protecting those public facts. Privacy laws are about letting you choose what becomes public. No one needs to know if someone has a uh, mental illness. No one needs to know uh, if that person has facts about uh, himself or herself that, that they want to keep private. And so privacy is about controlling that flow of data. Civil rights is often about protecting people about, quote unquote, data that they can't prevent from getting out. We have an email from Beth who says, you've not mentioned an abuse of personal data that concerns me. I thought of this after using my visa to contribute online to the Democratic Party, which was soon followed by a retail store counter hold by Visa asking to call to verify purchases. I'm sure this was just a coincidence, but it made me realize that corporations could use our political activities as a basis for supporting or denying us services, etc. Have you thought of this? Jeff, I see you nodding. Well, I mean, there's a vast and undisclosed and both parties and special interest groups are contributing to it. And sadly, there's not much attention to make a great show here 
on on Kojo in the in, in the near future, where they are constantly collecting and identifying our political behaviors. There's a huge market uh, in in collecting and selling our political behaviors, and all kinds of companies are buying that information. And yes, they can use it in ways to discriminate us. And it's one of the most troubling aspects of this new uh, data collection system that we have unleashed. Daniel, do you want to comment? Well, just, you know, a short comment. You know, data enables um, more effective and efficient uh, political speech. So, you know, as you know, American, the, you know, one difference between the United States and, and Europe, we were making this comparison, is we you know, have this huge value, you know, we highly value, um, you know, the freedom of speech here. And data enables that. So as we think about these privacy laws, we also have to think about what's the impact on the ability to actually engage in meaningful political speech and how that squares uh, with our Constitution. Alvaro. So I think um, I can respond, I think, in one word, and it's California. You know, the center of our data industry, the center of innovation in America, we cannot deny, is California. And the state with the single most powerful privacy laws is California. They regularly pass four or five times more privacy laws than uh, uh, than most other states, and they regularly pass like 20 times more privacy laws than the United States Congress. And so um, I, uh, I agree. I want to foster that economy, and I think one of the ways to foster it is through privacy uh, and privacy protection. And I, you know, I don't see companies leaving California because there's too much privacy protection. And companies should not have a First Amendment right to freely gather our data and information and use it any way they want. That should be an individual right. So we've just got about 30 seconds left, but Alvaro, I'm going to follow on your California comment with the last question. So I get asked this question a lot as a computer scientist in this area, you know, what's the future of the legislation? And my guess as a computer scientist is that some of looking to some of these states is the thing that we're going to see first, because the U.S. Congress, like they kind of haven't caught up to the Internet in a lot of ways. Um, so do you agree with that? Do you see that states are the place that we're going to see this? I see two things. I see Republicans and Democrats in in Congress pushing hard, investigating Congressman Barton of Texas, Senator Frank at Mild Bossom, obviously biased. Uh, these folks are pushing real hard, but the laws that will be passed will be passed at the state level. One fun thing to watch, there's a facial recognition privacy suit in Illinois, one of two states that has a facial recognition mm. privacy law. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how these arguments play out in court there. So that's all the time that we have for today. We could have a much longer conversation, uh, but I think we got a good start on this topic here. I'd like to thank our guests, Alvaro Bedoya, founding executive director of the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. Thanks for joining us. Also in studio, Jeff Chester, Executive Director of the Center for Digital Democracy. Thanks Thank for being with us. And on the phone, Daniel Castro, uh, Vice President of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'm Jen Gulbeck, sitting in for Kojo Namdi. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow on the Kojo Namdi Show, Hollywood's glass ceiling. The ACLU calls for an investigation into hiring practices that keep women out of Tinseltown's top jobs. Then at one, most pigs spend their short lives in overcrowded pens at factory farms. Food journalist Barry Estabrook looks at the smart, adaptable creatures. The Kojo Namdi Show, noon till 2 tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Mostly cloudy, 83 degrees here in northwest Washington. On the next Fresh Air, Elizabeth Banks. She directed the new hit comedy Pitch Perfect. And you'll hear from Rachel Dissel, a reporter for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, whose investigation into sexual assaults helped lead... WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.